Welcome to Fraud Busting. I'm Tracy Brown, the Fraud Busting Body Language Expert. I've spent the last 20 years reading people, uncovering secrets hidden in plain sight to find the truth in crimes, politics, and billion dollar business deals. It's time to dive in so you can beat the fraudsters at their own game and build your bottom line. White-collar defense attorney Sarah Azari visits fraud busting today. We met while filming a new TV show on the Fox Crime Channel called The Criminal Mind, and she was such a powerhouse there, I had to have her on the show. She'll reveal her methodology in successfully defending white-collar fraud cases and also getting plenty of clients out of jail. She'll talk mitigating and aggravating factors, interrogation techniques, and even the rise in PPP loan fraud. Don't miss this episode. It could keep you out of jail. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on Fraud Busting. I am so excited to meet you. Uh, now, likewise, likewise. Because <laughs> let's let's tell about how how we actually didn't meet before. <laughs> so we were both on a new TV show for the Fox Crime Network, and it's called The Criminal Mind. At least that's the working title. And everybody uh, got to be in studio except for me where I was on and for, and for, for a period of time we couldn't even hear you and then finally we were able to hear your wisdom which was nice <laughs> I know I was asking y'all questions and you're just sitting there like blanking me out I'm like what is wrong with these people I'm not that bad <laughs> but you couldn't even hardly see me the way the studio was arranged either so um Anyway, it, we, we, we made it work and I'm glad we get to talk a little bit now. So let's, um, let's get to know you a little bit. So you're out in LA. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm an Angelina, you know, um, I wasn't born here, but I, uh, been here all my life pretty much. Oh. And, um, and, you know, went to college, went to law school here locally. Uh, I didn't really move out of Southern California until after law school. I got a job at a big fancy law firm uh, in South America, in Brazil. Oh. And um, I spent a few years there and I very quickly realized that my passion was not for sitting behind a, you know, a desk at a conference room mm -hmm. and doing mergers and acquisitions and, you know, international corporate work. And I came back to the U.S. to pursue my passion for criminal defense. And, you know, after a few years of doing, uh, not, not to minimize any type of crime, but I did a lot of, you know, misdemeanors and little things, I, um, I began to expand my practice into more complex criminal cases and in, in, in the white collar area. So uh, I do take cases from time to time in state court, you know, street crimes, but uh, my specialty is really in white collar uh, and most of my work is in federal court and I, I handle cases in uh, not just LA but pretty much all over the nation um, often I have cases in New York I've had cases in Florida um, New Mexico I mean anywhere where someone is trouble under federal law uh, I can pretty much um, appear and, and defend them and work on their case so okay um, that yeah so the biggest question I think that anyone's going to have who's listening to this did you run out of toilet paper during the pandemic last year when everything went wrong? <laughs> I actually didn't. I was pretty stocked up until, uh, you know, until it was back in stock. So um, I was good. But you know what? I was uh, confined to my dining room. Uh, my practice changed 
drastically. Uh, clients that were being billed were suddenly out of resources and out of jobs and uh, were not able to really pay for their defense. And frankly, courts closed down, so nothing was really moving along. But um, it, what was interesting about the pandemic, and I think this is, uh, all of us should look at it. Unfortunately, some of us have experienced loss and grief and yeah. you know horrible things, but to the extent we haven't, uh, we need to look back and find the silver lining because for me, it was the ability to quickly uh, focus on um, what I normally don't do, which is post-conviction. And I, uh, I got news, I was watching, I remember I was watching CNN and I, I heard about Paul Manafort getting out mm -hmm. and uh, you know, he'd only served a fraction of his sentence and then M Michael Cohen getting out. Mm -hmm. And I thought, what the hell is going on? I'm gonna look into this and I'm gonna focus on getting the non-corrupt you know corrupt politicians, uh, other people that have been mm -hmm. convicted. And I very quickly brushed up on, um, uh, you know, 18 United States Code 3582, which is the compassionate release statute. Oh. And uh, I got one guy out of prison. And when you do that, the word gets around very quickly in the prison. And so all of the family members, wives, girlfriends, sisters, you know, uh, parents of other inmates began to call me. So for that entire year, my practice became compassionate release of inmates. Wow. And these were people that mostly got convicted of nonviolent, you know, fraud. Some of them were drugs, but, but again, nothing uh, drastically violent. Um, and uh, I filed 10 motions. These motions were extremely uh, detailed. Um, They're like, each of them were on average 40 pages. And then with exhibits, uh, I had to set forth risk factors, medical reasons. Then I had to look into their underlying case. I had to argue their mitigating factors and that they had served enough time already, um, even though it was a fraction of their total sentence. And so out of 10 motions that I filed um, up until just recently, I got five people out, which to me was amazing because in my entire career, almost 20 years, I've never gotten anybody out because I just don't, <laughs> I, I try to keep people from going in, but I don't really get anybody out. And so it was really nice to get that sort of justice. Um, it's something that I really never thought of doing. I don't like writing. I, I, I like to go and perform in court. And um, so my practice drastically changed during that year because that's really all I could do. I couldn't go to court. I couldn't pick up new cases. There weren't any new investigations. And, but that's the good that came out of it mm -hmm. was that these are all people that really did, did deserve to get out. And, um, and I would have never really thought about, you know, doing anything like that. It's not what I do normally. Um, I leave wow. the post-conviction appellate things to other lawyers. And so this, this suddenly I became a law and motion attorney at my computer. Um, I actually have to get new glasses and, you know, everything sort of, <laughs> Yeah, I can see you physically, have the, the, yeah, physically uh, change with my eyes and everything, yeah, yeah. but it was worth it. It was worth it. I, I got these people out. And so that was nice. Now. Okay. So here's a question that you can answer however you want to. Um, so if people are in prison, how, I mean, cause you're like, you're a big deal lawyer. Like how, how do they afford you uh, to, how does that really work? 
So um, these individuals, uh, you know, I did get calls from people who just couldn't, did not have support, did not have resources, but these are people that had family and friends on the outside that were willing to what I, you know, I called it a gamble. I, you know, they would say to me, well, what are the, what is the percentage that you might prevail? And I was like, listen, 50, 50, Uh because I haven't even looked at, you know, what the underlying risk factors are, what the health conditions are. I don't know your, you know, your brother, your husband's uh, underlying case. I have to get all those records, Mm -hmm. but I always told these people, if you can come up, I mean, obviously if you don't have the money, you don't have the money, but if you can come up with this money, it's not like we get a pandemic every day, you know, it's worth the gamble. And, you know, and those of them that got out, they, they keep telling me, "I'm, I'm so glad I did this. Um, it's the best money I ever spent. Um, and so, yeah, unfortunately there were people who couldn't afford, um, trying this, this route, but those that could, it was through family and friends that were willing to support them. Got it. Got it. So, okay. So I was, you're probably the, of all of my podcast, uh, interviewees or guests, let's say you are the most prepared out of any of them. And uh, j- just because of the conversations that that we've had, and exactly how how we want to go through things to showcase your your brilliance here, and so I think that shows in in the uh, statutes that that you just named off for compassionate release. But there was another one that we talked about, um, 3553A, which is uh, factors in mitigation. And so why not? I don't even want to try to describe it more than that. I know you know a lot about it because because you're the white collar. Oh defense attorney. Uh, and, and so why don't you take that on? Because it, sure. just tell us what it's about, how you've been able to use it and, and how it relates back to white collar crime and, and, and fraud. Right. So 3553A factors under 18 United States Code 3553 um, are what are known as individual characteristics, um, either in mitigation or aggravation of uh, a particular individual's um, sentence. So they are absolutely critical in in federal court, you know, that these types of individual characteristics might not matter as much under various state laws, but under federal law, the judge must consider these factors. So for example, uh, many years ago, I represented a guy who I, at the time I took the case, I didn't know this, but later, very soon thereafter, I realized that he was a big white supremacist leader oh, uh, in, the, in the Nevada area, but he was, um, his case was a, just a minor passport fraud uh, um, uh, charge. Uh, however, at his sentencing, all of his racist tattoos all of these um, previous uh, riots that he had led that were white supremacist riots, et cetera, all of those came in as aggravating factors to the point where this was normally an offense where he should have been sentenced to probation or maximum six months. Um, The judge gave him four years. Really? Uh, On the flip side, 3553A factors can also be mitigating factors. And the reason that's so important and and why I'm so passionate about what I do is because everybody has got something going on. And you and I have stuff going on, but we may not commit a crime because of it. But a lot of my clients, 
become my clients and are in the system because of this other stuff that they have going on, whether it's drug abuse, mental illness, uh, loss, grief, it could be anything. Um, and sometimes they're just, it's just straight up criminality, you know, and that's the, you know, that's yeah. not a mitigating factor, but these other things that um, humanize the defendant before a sentencing judge are absolutely critical because even with a plea agreement where you agree with the government as to a particular sentence or sentence range, um, when you go before the sentencing judge, the judge has to look at your aggravating and mitigating factors in order to fashion the right sentence. And so by humanizing your client and using their background, their childhood, their addictions, their um, development, their education, their charitable contributions to the community, you know, you suddenly show the judge who this person really is other than someone who committed the crime that's before the court. Ah, yeah, yeah. And that's why it's so critical. And, you know, when I get a case, I immediately begin digging for that information. I don't wait until, you know, whether or not the client's being sentenced, whether they get convicted. Um, this is sort of a long a drawn out investigation that requires interviewing family members, gathering records, and you know all of it towards sort of a nice presentation at sentencing, um, because that allows the judge to go even below what you may have agreed with with the government in terms mm -hmm. of a sentence. So it's really critical. Now, and and you said uh, like like because because you'll have people visit psychologists and do all kinds of things that may seem unnecessary. Um, mm -hmm through this and, and you mentioned one case where I think you were able to use this where there was fraud going on and someone actually didn't know they were involved so mm -hmm. can you speak I, I'm just so curious like what happened and so, not so all came out. No, he, he knew he knew he was involved but um now, now, now what what was going on what was okay. going on so he was a c-suite officer of um the, and I can say this because it was written up in the papers and everything uh, of the uh, Screen Actors Guild pension plan, pension okay. health plan. And he was um, in charge of getting subcontractors to do work for the, uh, you know, primarily computer securities and things of that nature for the organization. Uh, the allegations in the case were that in the process of paying these subcontractors, bills were inflated, so fraud, um, so that some of the money were, were kickbacks paid to my client. And so there was a sham uh, uh, company that, that um, they, they alleged that my client had set up with his wife to receive those kickback monies. Mm -hmm. And so this was a case of wire fraud because computers were used to send emails, et cetera, about the fraud and um, apparently tax fraud because of the deductions and things that were the income that was not reported or the over reporting of deductions, et cetera. Now, interestingly, something that not doesn't happen that often, but does happen sometimes is the government blew the five-year statute on the mail fraud. And they tried to argue that, no, it's extended because of this, this, and that, and they failed. Um, I mean, I showed them that they failed. And so the only thing that they could really proceed on was the tax fraud because tax fraud carries a six-year statute of limitations as opposed to five. So they were within that statute. And so they proceeded on the tax fraud. Nonetheless, my client was easily facing, I think from what I remember about four years, according to the plea agreement, 
and uh, based on the loss amount, which, you know, fraud cases, um, just like drug cases are generally your exposures based on the drug quantity in fraud cases, your exposure is based on the loss amount. Mm -hmm. So he was facing about four years and, um, you know, the 3553A factors were great. He was, you know, never, we'd never been arrested before. He had great depression and mental issues and, um, and just sort of was in a bad time of his life where he was doing all kinds of weird things that just were not normal for him. And so we put together a great package. I had had him, um, uh, evaluated by a forensic psychologist. He was going to counseling. Um, I had him do a lot of charitable work. Um, he, I mean, look, a lot of defendants find faith in Christ and all that. And he did too, but I think he really was genuine about it. He, he needed that structure in his life and he found it in, you know, church. And so all of that came in and throughout this whole process, uh, initially him included, Everybody that was working with me, my co-counsel who was doing the employment issues in the case, the guy's wife, his family, everyone's like, what the hell is going on? Why are you every day you're sending, sending him to a new expert, right. to a new appointment? We got to pay for this. We got to pay for that. And I kept saying, listen, I need the stuff. I'm not trying to waste your money. None of these people are giving me kickbacks for these referrals. <laughs> Trust me. This is because I really need the workup in the case. And so- Fast forward to sentencing, um, the judge gave him probation, which was uh, unreal because this also this judge was not, sometimes we have judges that are very defense oriented. They're very liberal. He's sort of middle of the road. He wasn't someone I expected probation from, but nonetheless, he sentenced my client to probation and everybody's jaw dropped. And so my, my colleague who was working on the employment issues said, okay, now it all makes sense to me that this was not some crazy, you know, path that you were sending this guy down, that, that this was all for a good reason. And this was sort of creative strategy. And it really is creative strategy is that your ability to see through the end of the case, and this can only come from experience. When I first started doing federal cases, I was just doing the best I can in the present moment. You know, I really right. didn't have much insight on what it could look like at the end, but with experience, you start to kind of be able to write the script. And I was able to go right to the future and go, this is what I need it to look like. And for me to get from point A to Z, these are the things that need to happen. And it, and it just, you know, it was a perfect example of how it works out when you, you know, when you have a client who cooperates, when you know what you, your, your, your client needs to do, you know, and um, it all worked beautifully. So how, how does that work um, for you when you know your client's guilty? <laughs> and is, is it at that point okay, I just need to get him the smallest sentence that I can, or what's, what's the thought in your mind and what's your methodology? Like, like we talked a little bit about it here, but is there anything else that you're thinking, like going down the path here to, mm -hmm. uh, with, with these white collar criminal folks? Yeah. So I really don't care if my client is factually guilty. I care if, if the government can prove their guilt beyond a reasonable doubt under the law. Mm -hmm. uh, my job is to hold the accountable, uh, the, the government accountable, not, not okay. really determine whether my client did or not. Of course, I expect my client to be honest because the investigation I do, 
the, uh, not because I'm going to fight less for them if they really were guilty of the crime, but right. just because I don't want to be set down the wrong path. And right. so, um, you know, I'll, I'll give you a perfect example right now is I'm representing a client in federal court for an, an older fraud case that they um, just recently unsealed the indictment from a few oh. years ago. And uh, multi-defendant, um, bank fraud, you know, aggravated identity theft, all of those money laundering, all kinds of stuff. So the client is really down at the bottom of the list of defendants. He was an employee of the business, you know, nothing, nothing major. Um, and I think the allegations are that he deposited 15 checks. And so the question is, well, how the hell did he know what these checks were? He was working right. for, for a guy that was his boss mm -hmm. at a store and he was told to go to the bank, you know? And now, does he have, does he break the law? Yeah. I mean, is, he's a heroin addict. Uh -huh. uh, he has had multiple identity theft cases in state court. He's had drug cases. He's had problems trying to stay out of trouble. Uh -huh. But in this particular case, with the fraud and all that, I'm looking at the evidence. You know, the, the guy ha has broken the law in various ways. He's not perfect. He has a drug addiction. But even without the drug addiction, right? I'm looking at this particular case and I'm looking at whether the government can prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. Mm -hmm. And from what I'm seeing right now, I don't see anything except for one video of him in a bank mm -hmm. um, and pretty much a, a, cop, a copy of the check because he endorsed it in the back to, to, mm -hmm. to, 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 to deposit it. But multiple people that the government interviewed in their investigation, people that were cooperating, nobody knows my guy. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows who he is. So it's like, I can't let them get away with that. You know, they have a job to do and their job is to have evidence for every conviction that they get. And so I really don't care that my client has been a bum and a derelict and a drug addict and a huh. stolen huh. identity theft or whatever, you know, um, I care about whether they can prove their case and, and whether they are upholding the constitution because my job is to uphold the constitution. Right. Now that's real interesting. Cause that's the first thing I got about you when we sort of met on that TV show, because we got asked to, um, uh, review. A I thought everyone's at some point, I thought everyone's going to beat me up. Cause I thought <laughs> at some point, at some point, everyone got really quiet and started rolling their eyes. And I thought, Oh Lord, well, <laughs> now, that. let's, let's frame this up a little bit. They told us a producer joy, who was awesome. Uh, she's like, I want you all to argue. And I'm, and I'm thinking, Oh boy, here we go. And so we had to watch this video in, in viewers can go watch it on YouTube. It's the Michael Raff, Rafferty is his name, uh, interrogation, and you can find it, and it's several hours long, and I watched most of it, but I had to turn it off, and we'll get into why. Um, now, he is a, uh, he's been convicted child rapist killer, right? Um, now, when I looked at that video, I thought, oh my gosh, this guy is a complete liar, totally did this, and you're arguing the other like what you just argued right now was was about proving the case, and I'm like, oh my god, who is this woman? How am I going to get around this? <laughs> and in that case, I mean, I think your your listeners, your audience should definitely. It's painful to watch. I watched all four hours, 
but it is the worst interrogation I've ever seen. Almost worse than uh, making a murderer. Uh, you know that the the documentary. Oh, wow. I I mean that was a coercive interrogation, kind of a different issue. This was like epic failed uh, read technique. You know the read technique goes back to the forties. And it's a classic interrogation technique where a law enforcement is trained to put the suspect in a very uncomfortable situation, mm -hmm. sort of a windowless, cold, uh, you know, very um, sterile type of environment with no food, no water, nothing. And then they start interrogating them. And they, you know, so they do the isolation where they put them in this type of setting. And then they do the maximization, which is, you know, the officer starts out by you know, basically working off the premise that the suspect's already guilty. Everything is pointing to guilt. You're done. You're done. So the best thing you can do for yourself is to tell me that you did it. You know, yeah. that's the premise. And then the minimization comes last, which is that, um, you know, it's sort of the good cop portion of the interview, which is, you know, um, don't you feel better now that you've confessed, you know, that, that yeah, isn't this better? This is better for everybody. Everybody wants to know the truth from you. So, it, 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 but this guy in the Rafferty case where we were discussing was a painful monologue um, with no offense to Canadians, because I love Canadians. I have a lot of Canadian friends, but really sort of a I don't know. It, it, it was the accent within the context of this interrogation that was just so painful. And um, so I, of course, in, in our panel was saying, maybe he did it. You know, maybe he did it. Maybe he's good for this, uh, this crime, but he should not have been interrogated in that way. And um, then they brought his uh, co-defendant in, who was his drug addicted girlfriend. Yeah, and they, they brought her in. He did this confrontation. And all of these absolutely, I mean, I was cringing, I was jumping out of my chair and things that are not supposed to be done. Um, and therefore he was convicted. And, and so a lot of it turned on that girlfriend's uh, testimony, which I, I saw very problematic in terms of her credibility. So my point was not that this guy is an angel or that this guy is innocent, but that this guy you know, his case presented some huge evidentiary problems and some huge missteps by the prosecution and law enforcement. And so I felt strongly about the conviction being based on some really unethical and unkosher, you know, processes. Well, yeah, I can tell you did. Because I was sitting here at home on Zoom going, oh my gosh. But I, but I wanted to understand your thought process behind it, right? Because because me as a body language expert, I'm looking at that and I'm going, okay, this interrogation is horrible. It was, it's worth a watch if you're interested in interrogations at all or interviews as they call them. Um, and again, that case is Michael Rafferty. And this interviewer did well, Michael Rafferty decided not to talk very much, but you know what? He didn't have time to talk because the interviewer was- He did all the talking. He did all the talking. He would not pause at all. And he just kept talking and talking. And, and the number one rule in interrogations is silence. Like, just be quiet and you'll be shocked at what people say. So um, right. definitely worth a watch. And, and some, of his, um, <laughs> some of his logic- on uh, you know confessing or did he do it or not was the same um, same logic that they use in hotels to get you right. to not launder your towels, which is everybody right. sat in that chair today has confessed. You might as well just make it easy. What do they say in hotels? 
85% of the people in this room do not wash their hotels, right? Or wash their towels. So you feel like a schmuck for, for what if you want to do it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, um, totally worth a watch. Okay. So let's, let's switch, let's switch something because you said you knew, and I think, I think, well, um, I think this is super uh, relevant to what's going on right now. You said you knew a little bit about the rise in PPP fraud, which is a paycheck protection program. What do you know about that? What's going on? What's the latest? Because I'm sure these these fraud schemes kind of shift and twist as uh, as we get further into things. What are you seeing out there? You know, the, the trends change with the times. So, you know, although there's always the classic bank fraud and that kind of thing, loan fraud, mm -hmm. but, you know, when you have a, uh, uh, an event that causes despair in the population yeah. and the masses, like the pandemic did, where people, you know, um, were desperate to get by and to survive and not lose their homes, a crime goes up. Mm -hmm. And um, however, there's also a group who don't really act out of despair, but act out of criminality and are looking for the opportunities Opportunity. that, yeah. that will be provided by the government, uh, which gives them, you know, more opportunities, more relief, more chances to, to commit fraud. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we have seen a lot of that um, all over the nation, including in my district in the Central District of California. Uh, there's so much of it that the major fraud unit of the U.S. Attorney's Office and the DOJ here. Uh, they have a subgroup that only is looking at COVID fraud uh, cases. So um, loan fraud, like SBA loans mm -hmm. as a result of COVID, because SBA created a business loan specifically related to economic disaster, and then PPP. Um, we have a special group of prosecutors just doing those cases and not the other types of fraud cases. And so... Um, uh, you know, I have a few myself that I'm working on right now. And um, some of the allegations include, for example, um, setting up a sham business just and, and, and fake payroll records to oh. be able to get PPP loans. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, of course the government's angry. They're saying, yeah, that's why people that legitimately qualified for the PPP loans were for not being able to get PP loans, myself included. Yeah, me. Um, I was I was in that boat. I was stressing out because <laughs> I'm like, how am I gonna eat? <laughs> I because I'm not because I'm not an employee and I was not on payroll. I'm an independent contractor. I wasn't able to collect for myself. I was only able to collect for individuals that were on my payroll, which you know, mm -hmm. it's not that much money. But um, so the government's like, you know, that's why it's because your clients are doing yeah. this and that. And so. Um, you know, there's a lot of that sort of falsification of records because mm -hmm. uh, you have to present payroll records uh, in order to be able to get a specific, qualify for a specific loan amount. And so, mm -hmm. you know, uh, one case involves multiple defendants, um, multiple bank accounts, uh, where the allegations are that they set up different businesses that were non-existent, that they were just set up for the purposes of getting PPP relief. And then they applied using doctored, uh, reports, payroll reports, and they were able to get that. But, you know, what's surprising to me, and, and this is not a defense or trust me, I would use it. <laughs> I know you would too. <laughs> you know, what's surprising to me is that they process these loans. Like, how do you not go through the filtering and the, the scrutiny before you give away millions of dollars to, you know, a, a few different applicants, 
you know, for different businesses. I mean, doesn't that alone raise a red flag? Like that, and that's not a defense, but it's just like the system is also, it doesn't work. The system is not fraud proof. Oh, you know no. what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so it, 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 in these, in, and people that look for those opportunities know that, and therefore they know that, you know, they, so long as this and this and this checks out, their application is going to go through and it sure did. Mm-hmm. And now they're looking at, you know, um, fraud to, you know, the tune of millions of dollars. So yeah, that's a huge uh, trend right now in um, the DOJ and then in, in, you know, amongst criminal defense attorneys who defend the cases. Um, the other trend, you know, of course, is, uh, you know, political, political white collar stuff is always, you know, there's always. Oh, say say a little bit about that. What are you seeing? Um, we, you know, our biggest thing was recently we had a number of our LA city council people, uh, indicted and convicted by the, the DOJ in, in federal fraud cases. So for bribery, uh, you know, public corruption. Type oh, of. really? Yeah. So that, that's always, you know, there's always greed and opportunity among in politics, right? So oh, yeah. that's always happening. But in terms of trend, you know, it's mostly, uh, these types of fraud, unemployment fraud, which tends to be on the state side, mm-hmm. but it's still white collar fraud. And then uh, there's also a huge, uh, you know, task force across the nation for um, fentanyl. And this is not obviously it's oh, not right. fraud, but it's white. Co- yeah, it's um, dr- you know in the drug case with the DEA. They have a task force, and this was created in 2019 because of the rise of fentanyl addiction and fentanyl deaths. Um, where distributors of drugs were were making it look like oxycodone, but it really was fentanyl. And um, then COVID hit, so a lot of these investigations were put on hold. And uh, I'm I have a case involving a fentanyl death, and um, my client is addicted himself and um, alleged to have provided a pill that ultimately got to a family member who then died. And so, um, the idea is, you know, this happened in 2019 at the end of 2019, but they just didn't get around to it, to an indictment until this year because of the pandemic Yeah, yeah. pandemic also slowed, well, stopped everything really, um, in terms of prosecutions and indictments and trials. And now it's really busy because things have happened during that, during 2020, and then things that had happened prior to that time uh, that were due to be indicted and, you know, stopped. There was no grand juries. There was no prosecution. So anyway, it's interesting times. Isn't it though? Isn't it though? Well, I tell you what, you, um, if I ever need help getting out of any podcast, you are my first call. <laughs> so so uh, how can people get a hold of you? <clears throat> So um, you can follow me on Twitter and it's, my handle is at Azari Law and then Azari Law, A-Z-A-R-I-L-A-W.com is my website. So if it's related to media, you can reach me on Twitter. Um, If it's related to cases, you can look me up on my website and there's a contact form that you can submit uh, your communication and I can reply to you that way. Oh, good. Okay. Well, I hope, uh, I hope people get smart and call you when they need a little help. Thank you so much for coming on Fraud Club. It was great chatting with you, Tracy. Thanks for joining me. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast, rate and review it. I'll see you next time.